power of storytelling, the power of their art is so strong and it has such a responsibility attached to it and it can be used for good or evil. And you have to recognize um, that power you have and how are you going to use it, that responsibility. We try to open their eyes to a different perspective on that, basically being that opera is simply a story that is set to music. And that's the first way that we start to introduce uh, these individual students who um, never heard of opera. Welcome to the third installment of the Chapters podcast series. I'm your host, John Barrett Ingalls, along with Jonelle Strickland. In our chapter series, we focus on stories surrounding the exclusion, forced removal, and internment of Japanese Americans. But with all that is happening in our country right now, in this historic moment, ripe with the potential for change and growth. We are expanding our scope and amplifying the voices of organizations and artists who are trying to make a difference, who are standing at the convergence of art, education, and social justice. With this series, we honor those who have struggled and suffered in the past and question, how are we still here? How have we not come any further than this? In this episode, we connect with Dr. Stacy Brightman, Vice President of LA Opera Connects, and Eli Villanueva, Resident Director for LA Opera Connects, to discuss their California Civil Liberties grant-supported opera camp. Here's Eli Villanueva in conversation with Jonelle about the program. Eli Villanueva comes to us today in his 16th season as Resident Stage Director and Teaching Artist for LA Opera Connects. Tell me a little bit more about Opera Camp. Who attends? How many are we talking about? And what might a typical day look like for campers and staff? Sure. Well, um, Opera Camp, uh, it's really welcoming anybody who is interested in an intense, exhausting, and fun experience over a two to three week period. We invite anybody from the age of nine to 17. We accept anybody, uh, whatever their experience is. They could be very well trained in music. They could be great musicians themselves. They could be individuals who've never heard of opera, but they want to experience it. And if they're willing to work very hard, work very intensely, they are very welcome to be in this experience with everybody else. This sounds like a fantastic social experiment. Just it, leaving the opera out of it, putting all of those groups together. Right? It is extremely diverse. Um, and we have kids from underserved areas. We offer them scholarships so that they, they can be able to attend. We offer, uh, uh, we open positions to kids who are in other uh, choral groups and they are looking for uh, an opportunity to perhaps be featured as a soloist. Um, and we have those experience. We have those who've been with us year over year. Sometimes they start at nine and they go through their whole experience every summer with us until they're 17 and we have to kick them out. Um, but with each one of those years, they are being uh, trained. They are honing in certain skills and they recognize that we are really working on every individual's skill level wherever they are coming from uh, at that particular summer. 
Opera Camp is being funded at least at least partially through a California Civil Liberties grant from the California State Library. What is the Civil Liberties component of the production? Well, Opera Camp has evolved into a situation where we have repertoire and productions that deal with periods of time of our history. So one of them, one of the first pieces that we brought was a piece called uh, Brundibar. But with Brundibar, it's a, it's a children's story about a bully. And this particular piece was performed, I think, 56 times in the, in the uh, ghetto uh, camp of, um, of Theresienstadt. And uh, the, the people there in Theresienstadt uh, used this as a form of hope, as a form of rebellion, uh, to give voice to themselves. Um, and, and the officers who were running the camp didn't see it as a big deal, so they allowed them to continue using it. It was something to hold on to, and therefore, uh, there were always tickets that were sold out. It's in a very important piece on that period of time. But then to help the students understand it, we have to talk about World War II, the Holocaust, and those individuals who lived in the Holocaust. At the same time, we're trying to be artistic. We had in 2007, 2008, we had more and more kids who were really well-trained vocally who wanted an opportunity to be featured. And Brundibar just didn't have enough with all the amount of talented individuals we were having. So we created a, a, a sister piece to go with Brundibar called Friedel. And Friedel is a story of Friedel Dicker Brandeis, who was, uh, she was an art teacher and art therapist, uh, especially in the camps. And she was holding classes for art, poetry, uh, and, and the kids really were surviving because of these classes. They were very popular, but they had to do it in secret. And so this piece, created a classroom experience within Theresienstadt. And we start to go through the background of this particular period of time. And the individuals in the camp started to hear personal stories of people who were really living that time. And we had the opportunity to um, talk with and invite the cat of the of the Brundebar that was performed in Theresienstadt. She performed all of the uh, productions as the cat. And she came to us and would be able to share stories with the kids. And that was such a revelation for the students to actually have somebody real, a hero real, that they can talk to and hear their stories personally. And it became... Um, it opened the eyes of Stacy Brightman, who is our fearless leader, and um, she believed that this was a way to uh, enlighten the students about other people in the world. And we started to create an oeuvre. We have another piece about the Japanese internment. 
um, and individuals who were living through that time, and we bring in heroes who were um, in that particular experience. Dr. Stacy Brightman is the vice president of LA Opera Connects. She's been with the LA Opera for almost 20 years. We talk a little more about Opera Camp, its history, and its mission. Well, Opera Camp, again, was in the, those early years when we thought, okay, we're ready to go beyond the school day. I had discovered, and I had never known about it before, this astonishing children's opera called Brundabar. Brundabar was written immediately before World War II, about 1937, 1938, uh, in Prague by a Czech composer named Hans uh, Krasa. Hans Krasa and so many of the intellectuals and, and great artistic leaders, uh, Jewish leaders of that time, were sent to a concentration camp uh, not too far from Prague called um, Theresienstadt or Terezin. And so this opera, like so many other pieces of music and instruments, were smuggled into the camp. And this children's opera, which has this beautiful story of resilience, it's about a boy and a girl whose mommy is sick. And the doctor says that you need to get her milk to help her feel to be become well. And they have no money. They see there's an organ grinder named Brunabar who, who entertains people and people just throw him money because he's just so entertaining. And they think, well, we'll do the same thing. And when they try to do it, it turns out Brunabar is in fact quite the bully. He's quite the tyrant. And, uh, and he was even performed with a little funny mustache mm. under his nose. And but with the help of the, a bird, dog, and a cat, and all of the other children in town, they're able to um, drive Brundabar, distract Brundabar, drive him from the town square, and to sing a lullaby. All the children gather and they sing a lullaby um, to, to their parents. And that gets them the money and they are triumphant in the end. And so this really inspired us to start an opera camp so that we could do this opera and we could bring in the story of the Holocaust. And at that time, there were a few survivors still. Remarkably, it was a beautiful woman named Ella Weisberger who had played the cat in all 55 performances and she had survived the Holocaust. She would come, we, we started doing Brunabar um, for like three years in a row as a summer opera camp. And it became a program that was equally about extending the children's any any young person ages nine through 17 who came and did camp with us wherever they were on their artistic journey we were going to stretch them we were going to build their skills we're going to take you to the next several levels and we're going to work you really really hard in doing it but equally as important the twin goal of opera camp was that a young person would understand that the power of storytelling the power of their art is so strong and it has such a responsibility attached to it and it can be used for good or evil. And just look at the Nazis. The Nazis were masterful uh, storytellers, propagandists, and you have to recognize um, that power you have and how are you going to use it, that responsibility. And so social justice training, um, learning in the same way that they might learn the vocabulary of music and theater and staging, you know, uh, you know, that they might learn what legato means. They should also learn what a civil right is. Right. And, and so, um, so it, 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 it's always had these, this twin focus and, and really showing that those two things are in fact 
become one and the same. And that the more, you know, how do you become kind of a responsible young citizen artist? And, and how do you become committed to social justice in your stories? And how, especially when Ella would come out and she would meet with the kids and she would come to the performances and she would share her story, the extraordinary responsibility of when uh, an elder like that shells, shares their story of struggle and just and the fight for justice, and they've entrusted it to you. What does that mean? That means you better work even harder. You better you've got to work even harder to do better to try and do right. You will never be worthy of the story, but you must do everything in your pos- in your humanly possible to be worthy of that story. And the idea that they carry that um, they carry that. Um, what Ella entrusted to them for for the next 60 or 70 years uh, until they're her age, because she was 11 years old when she went into uh, that, the concentration camp. So that has really set the course. And after a few years, we realized, okay, well, you know, wait a minute. It's not just the Holocaust. We had concentration camps here in the U.S. How do we talk about that? You know, how do we talk about the Japanese American internment? How do we start to talk about other stories and struggles for, um, for justice? How do we teach human relations? And how do we teach some of these very, very difficult histories to young people, sometimes, you know, nine, 10 years old? And so we started commissioning operas, including The White Bird of Poston, uh, which is set on the Poston internment camp, which, you know, again, I'm an Angelino. I thought I knew my history. Uh, and I had never heard of Poston. And the remarkable story of a, a, an internment camp, Japanese-American internment camp, being intentionally positioned on a Native American reservation. Mm-hmm. And just how mind-blowing that is of concentration camp within a concentration camp, if you will. And the fact that for um, a while during World War II, Poston was actually managed by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It's just kind of boggling and, and sort of the diabolical um, cleverness of, you know, the, the American government wanted the uh, Native, American res- uh, Native American tribe to develop the land, you know, to, to irrigate it. And um, the tribe resisted. So therefore, what we'll do instead is we'll bring the Japanese, these, you know, kind of brilliant gardeners and agriculturalists to to Poston and we'll have them develop it. You know, again, in Brindabar, the Joe and Annette and all the children are the heroes. And there is this kind of inversion that uh, of, you know, for instance, at the at the climactic moment, the children stop and they sing a lullaby for their parents, you know, the inversion of that. So that here it's the children saving Mm. the mom. It's the children singing a lullaby to the adults that became kind of a model for us. So uh, each of these youth operas are about youth heroes and young people having the power to really affect change and to be agents of change. And uh, so so similarly, uh, so that's what the story is in Poston. It's about, um, a young Japanese American girl, Akiko, but she also, when she runs away, she encounters a young uh, Native American boy who's on his quest because it's his, it's his land. 
And then the story, also a, a beautiful opera that I'm very, very proud of that we commissioned called Then I Stood Up, really focuses on the young heroes of the civil rights movement. So I'm curious, when you work with young people, how do you see them affected by, I don't know, this, this kind of like eye-opening moment of this happens in our world, that oh. this, this is, you know, this is history. This yeah. is history of your country and this is history in your city. Sometimes it's emotional. Uh, sometimes it's hard. They bond with each other though. That's one of the good things is we do it as a, as a, we become our own kind of tribe. We certainly become a commute, a family because they're making something together. And, you know, nobody crosses the finish line first in opera. That's not how it works, right? right. We all got to get there together. So when they're grappling with these hard you know, and we bring in experts. We, that's the other thing that's very important. So we work with the um, LA Museum of the Holocaust. We work with the Japanese American National Museum. We work with the Watts Labor Community Action Committee. We rely upon the support and help and guidance of our friends. And similarly, the kids find themselves doing that. But to further answer your question, the other part of it is, they rely on each other. They talk about it amongst each other, but then they personalize it, right? Because that's what arts do for you. They, it's sort of a, it's practicing empathy. It's disciplined. Mm. It's guided empathy. So it's not just history they're learning, but now in a weird way, again, you're performing Ella's story. When you perform in Brundabar, you're, do, you're, you're reliving a little bit of her life. The act of performing these roles and having to use your creative imagination and your heart and soul to empathize and to understand these characters. That's the other breakthrough. That's, you know, so it's not just the power of the sure. facts and the history, but then taking you through in this kind of guided way with the support of your friends and your teachers, making a creative walk in somebody else's shoes. That's, that's very profound for the students and, and can be emotional. And so we have to try and do it in a way that is, going to come out the other end in a really positive and empowered way. Part of the whole human, um, human relations training and why we intentionally choose stories where young people can be victorious. Hmm. Where, where uh, so far each of these operas, uh, you know, I want my, I want our young people to be uplifted and inspired and feel ready to go out and, and uh, have their art but have, have, you know, have that power and that agency. Here is Jonelle with Eli Villanueva. So this year's iteration of Opera Camp is called The Song of Los Angeles. And I can see that it's currently being launched virtually. How does that, how does that virtual experience differ from and also maybe stay true to the Opera Camp experience? Um, actually, the Opera Camp in this virtual setting has um it actually has pretty much kept very close to what we would experience when we are uh in fa face to face with one another um our schedule holds pretty close except that we're on a three and a half hour day as opposed to a five to six hour day and in that uh we still start off in the morning with physical and vocal warm-ups. We are stretching. We are trying to wake up our muscles. We are trying to coordinate our bodies so that we are in alignment for good 
vocal singing. And we are uh, then, usually what we do is we break up into either ensemble rehearsals for music, or we break up into uh, sectionals, uh, because in uh, summers past, we can, we can be as, as many as 80 campers um generally because we have small stages that we used to work in uh we could only fit 55 60 at the very most and you know people are trying not to step on each other while they're trying to work in an energetic fashion but in the in this virtual world uh we cannot work as an ensemble we have to work extremely individually right and, and is that so, due to the timing the time lag on it, yes, it's it's the latency that we have with the internet. Uh, we cannot work at the same time. And, you know, some people have great bandwidth and others have very poor bandwidth. And uh, in one experience, we had one student, an opera camper who was working in one virtual camp while their sibling was working in another virtual opera camp and the mother is working in her job in another place. So that's three computers going through the same bandwidth and that really slows things down. So we have to work one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. So each kid has um, their own music track that we are working with and when we want to hear them they play the music on their side and we get to hear evaluate uh, make adjustments and make sure that they have adjustments if these are individuals who don't know how to sing because we start at nine years old and many kids don't even have the skills of hearing the note at that point so we take the time to help them to hear the notes and find their registers within their bodies. Um, so, and we get to work individually uh, with each one of them. So there is a development for each uh, student that, that happens, but this happens very quickly and very intensely. So um, it, it's a, it, you can't believe how fast three and a half hours moves along in a day like this for opera camp. We wanted to maintain the key characteristics of the camp it's it's missions of artistic growth and social justice and the number of kids the the right you know the, the same number of kids being able to be on scholarship having access to it and we just wrapped up on friday and i'm i am so moved and and, and touched by the responses that we've received. About half the, the kids doing the program were new to us this year. I, you know, just the overwhelming response was, I didn't know what to expect. I was worried. I didn't think I, uh, and you know, you're my family. I can't wait till we're all together. Everybody wants to be together. Right. We all want to be together. Just delighted, proud of the work they were doing. And, and what we did to keep the social justice is, we also sort of spread it out and we created this overarching concept of the song of los angeles and so that we're actually did by breaking the kids up into smaller pods we've created a quilt um, a social mm. justice quilt of heroes back in the 1930s during the federal theater project there was a, a a form of theater called the living newspaper and it was sort of based on an earlier model too that was germanic you know epic theater and uh, the idea of it was to take a, um, a social issue and to illustrate it and to, again, bring the audience in and have them empathize and understand it deeply. And so you would create these big shows 
that fe- you know that were you know stories from newspapers were enacted or it might include congressional testimony and so um so we essentially kind of created our own living newspapers and inspired by four different Los Angeles heroes Ava Nathanson who was a Holocaust survivor her story is ex- astonishing and terrifying and the story of resilience Tomas Benitez who was um, a, a great pillar in our arts community and was great Chicano movement leader. Shigemi Matsumoto, uh, another tremendous arts leader in Los Angeles, um, whose parents were at Poston. Mm. And, uh, and then another person that we all adore, Shirley Stark Wallace, a great educational pioneer here in Los Angeles and, and, and founded Charles Drew School. So, she, you know, so we had these four heroes come on and meet with the kids and share their story and trust the young people with their stories. And then the kids performed um, texts from other uh, leaders talking about these movements, but then also um, uh, music inspired by it. Virtual learning is kind of becoming the norm. Uh, Virtual education on on a grander scale, like moving away from (laughs) opera camp, I got to admit, I've been kind of diving deep into the ring cycle that you Ah. have available. And I'm curious if that's something with the set of circumstances that we're in now with with COVID. Is that something that opera is considering doing more of, of of releasing uh, content? Because opera is such an ephemeral. We are very, very deep already in. In fact, it has revolutionized the company, and uh, and we just recently announced almost immediately when this was started, it, it was a you know, we just decided we we can't we have to you know everything we preach about what an arts education does for you that it makes you flexible, adaptive, creative, problem solvers. We're like we got to practice what we preach, and uh, immediately we pivoted to um, all kinds of online programming uh, under the general banner of LA Opera at Home. And Ellie Opera at Home, just since the end of March, has had 600,000 plus views. So we've touched more people in this period of pandemic than we had in a previous year, you know, by two or three times, including our department. You know, our department, uh, we've been programming uh, children's programs. You know, we, I, I sort of described us as the... Um, the PBS of opera. So we, this first wave of a big giant group of programs that were all about going online for children's pro, you know, music and mindfulness, sing out loud for children, opera, opera happy hour, which is this kind of fun adult education recitals. Um, but then at the same time, less public facing, we pivoted and we went right immediately to our schools and said, we're here for you. We're ready to try. Let's do it. Let's just jump in. And I was, shocked and delighted how many teachers even back in April said, yeah, let's just keep doing what we're doing. So we pivoted right away to um, having teaching, to doing this, to keeping our residency programs going with schools and with hospitals. Um, I'm just, I'm so delighted. We have regular programs uh, of live music via zoom for Alzheimer's LA, for Keck school of medicine, for Zilka neurogenetic, Institute for Compton Adult Day Health Center for Rancho Los Amigos. So, you know, and, and so people were just so grateful for the connection. Again, our, our, our department name, boy, never seemed more 
prescient than it did then to yeah. say Ellie Opera connects. This mm -hmm. is what we do. When I first was introduced to opera, back when I was 12 years old, I had the privilege to actually be in an opera for my first experience, and that was with New York City Opera. And so it was also just this amazing sound. So the images of, of um, incredible artists creating this incredible amount of sound, this intense uh, sound going into one's ears is always something that uh, is very present in my mind. However, over the years, I've kind of moved my images and, and now I see images of a small crowded stage with more performers than there is space. Um, I think of kids sitting on the floor, sometimes sitting on pillows on the floor with their eyes wide open, watching a story unfold before them and everybody having a good time. These are the images that are always fresh in my mind. You are definitely changing my perspective on opera, widening <laughs> it for the better. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Definitely. <laughs> so I'd like to continue this thread and ask you about another program that you lead called the Opera Residency. Uh, the ones that I work on are in school and uh, we create a production that actually goes into the schools. We, we find a class uh, of students and we are their first contact when it comes to opera. I, I will always ask them, what do you think of? What are those pictures of mm -hmm. um, that you have when you hear the word opera? And of course, you will always hear about the you know, big woman with the helmet yeah. and the horns and the spear. <laughs> you always hear that. Um, and, you know, we try to open their eyes to a different perspective on that, basically being that opera is simply a story that is set to music. And that's the first way that we start to introduce uh, these individual students who um, never heard of opera. The thing is that <laughs> they're going to be on stage with us because there's nothing, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing more exciting than uh, being on stage with a singer working and singing their hearts out. Um, and so we try to share that experience with a student. Now, we have an 11-week an program that works for the high school students, and the content that we share with them is more towards what their experience would be as a teenager. And then when it comes to a nine-week program that we have for the elementary schools, their first contact would be something more akin to them. So we could bring in a story that loosely is based on Fanchula del West, which is Puccini's opera of Girl of the Golden West. But I, I saw that in Bugs Bunny one time. Uh, well, <laughs> I know you've seen Wagner in Bugs Bunny. <laughs> I'm going to have to look around to see if Girl of the Golden West is in a Bugs Bunny cartoon because he's one of my favorites and and Chuck Jones he's my hero as far as creating entertainment but uh, but we do create a more cartoonish perspective for a fourth grader fifth grader sixth grader so that uh, this opera is actually fun tangible engaging they can uh, it's accessible to them 
Um, and then they're understanding certain main uh, pieces that are in the main stage opera that they would see in, at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. I love theater, music, drama, visual arts, and I was always wanting to be a part of that world, um, but also to be somebody who could be a conduit for other communities and for other young people who may feel like they're locked out of it. And, and I just, you know, I, I feel like thanks to my mom and what my mom taught me, uh, my mission in life has been to throw open those doors and throw open the windows and tear off the roof and, and do anything and everything that creates a, a, an entry point. What was your introduction to opera? Do you remember the first time you were introduced? Yeah, it's pretty funny. But actually, I do remember my mom, uh, Operetta, came through at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. And my mom just was gung-ho that we would go see this thing, this operetta, whatever this operetta was. So I think it was, you know, it was Gilbert and Sullivan and it mm. was HMS Pinafore. And and I'm not sure that either one of us really understood what was going on, but <laughs> boy, we just, the, you know, again, there's something about the totality of the experience that was just, it was sparkling. People often ask me, you know, is it difficult to like, you know, get a young person to like opera? I don't even, it's a like, I feel like I'm letting you in on a trade secret. That is the easiest audience. The easiest audience by far are my younger audiences. They opera is the most natural thing in the world, a story told with music. We want to thank our guests, Dr. Stacy Brightman and Eli Villanueva for their time, their passion, and their commitment to arts and education. To find out more about LA Opera Connects, visit laopera.org slash community. Chapters podcast was produced by Heritage Future and made possible with support from Chapman University and California Civil Liberties Public Education Program, a state-funded grant project of the California State Libraries. For more information, visit heritagefuture.org, chapman.edu, and library.ca.gov.